Hannah, I understand you're back again with another pun for us. Oh, well, thank oh, you, Hannah. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry, Paul. Um, so, uh, so our next entry in the highly competitive, high-level Neff Madness slash Curbsiders pun competition uh, is from Dr. Mimi Back, um, who submitted it to us via our Instagram page. If you guys are ready for this one. I'm ready. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name's Mimi Bach. I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And this is my joke. Why did the nephrologist stop diuresing the patient who drank too many pumpkin spice lattes? I don't know. Because she was getting a little too basic. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) I... I don't even know what that is referring to. That that's like a millennial thing. So oh, be- okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that one. It's- <laughs> the Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more than use statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let's know the This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. ACP is proud to serve as the professional society for internists and has over 154,000 members. For a limited time, Doctors can save $100 on their first-year membership dues. Visit acponline.org forward slash join and use the code CURVE100 to get your discount. That's acponline.org forward slash join and use the code CURVE100 to get your discount. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. And we're not going to do a full intro tonight. I just wanted to quickly remind you who our guests are for this episode. This is our second Neff Madness episode. We talk about inpatient hypertension. Should you be using as needed medications for high blood pressure in the hospital? And we talk about hypertensive urgency versus emergency. We also talk about the use of perioperative ACE inhibitors, which is a sort of evolving topic in hospital medicine and perioperative medicine. And if you haven't heard part one, you should go back and listen to it. We have three wonderful guests. Also on this episode, there is the great Dr. Joel Toff, our chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. You can follow him on Twitter at kidney underscore boy. He is, of course, the co-creator of NefJC and Nef Madness, and he has been on many Curbsiders episodes in the past. He's also an award-winning educator. Our second guest is Dr. Pascal Carula. She is a second-year nephrology fellow at Columbia University, and she is an editorial intern at the American Journal of Kidney Diseases. She actually was the one who wrote the great post for the hospitalist region that you can see on the AJKD blog. And our final guest is Dr. Charlie Ray. He is an academic hospitalist and researcher, also works for the Journal of Hospital Medicine as both a director of the editorial fellowship and as a digital media editor. So without further ado, we'll get on to the show. First, we jump into picks of the week, and then we'll go on to talking about inpatient hypertension. Thank you and enjoy the show. Uh, I always have to, because I like to hear him speak so much, I always have to give uh, my co-hosts, especially the great Paul Williams, uh, a chance to give a pick. 
Yeah, happy to as always. And it's not going to be medically related as always. Uh, and I'm feeling guilty. I think my last pick was actually suitable for children. So I'm going to I'm going to change things up back to my usual. I'm going to recommend the um, the Comedy Central TV series Corporate. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see this. No, it's a series. It's created by Pat Bishop and Matt uh, Ingerbretson and Jake Weissman, the latter two who are actually stars of the series. And it's basically about these two schlubs in middle management trying to get their way up to like upper middle management. And it's if you've ever been part of a gargantuan um, Kafka-esque institution where the wheels kind of grind no matter what happens and what you do, I think you'll appreciate it. It is nihilism probably at its funniest. So if you've ever if you've ever had the displeasure of working for a large corporation, you'll completely relate. But I think even if you work for any kind of large system where you're just kind of screaming into the void, um, you'll probably also relate. And it's really, really funny, really dark, and, and obviously not for children. So I'm going to recommend Corporate. Now in season two. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart? Um, you know, I, I just want to like air some dirty laundry because I, I was talking about the, uh, the Expanse a couple of episodes ago. Uh-oh. And I purchased season three. Yeah, so... Are you retracting uh, about, again? No, I'm not retracting. Five days after I purchased season three, it went prime. So season three is now prime. But literally, it happened right after I purchased it. Wonderful show. It's really all I watched the last couple of days. I binged it. So and let me air more dirty laundry. I happen to know that uh, Stuart tweeted at Amazon and asked for a refund because <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So <laughs> check now before you uh, before you get a chance before you delete. I got a refund though. All right. Well, that I think that's the best advice that we are going to get on the show all night. Is that if. Uh, <laughs> If it goes prime right after you purchase it, Amazon will give you a refund. Yeah, uh, Jeff Bezos has bigger concerns right now. So our topic here is uh, PRN hypertension. Stuart, I believe this case Perfect. is for you. That's right. Mrs. Blingham is, a, is an <laughs> obese 66-year-old female with OA and hypertension who presents to the clinic and is found to have a blood pressure of 198 over 122. In fact, my technician was very anal and rechecked it three times in both arms. You know, what is the difference between... Oh, hold on a second. I got a little vomit in my mouth. Oh, my god! Hypertensive that's the, urgency. Oh <laughs> that's definitely going in the show at the end. No, no, no. It's because he had that word, hypertensive urgency. I, I, I just I threw up a little bit when I, when I saw urgency <laughs> and hypertensive emergency. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I can't even say that. Okay. So what's the difference? All right. I, I think Charlie... I think we should start with Charlie on this one. Yeah, I think this is you know this is one of these classic things that we're we're uh, taught in medical school. What is the difference between urgency and emergency? And the you know the simple answer is I think as a lot of us look at is you know emergency uh, both have elevated uh, blood pressure. Uh, classically, we think one you know a systolic above one eighty and a diastolic above one twenty. Um, but the difference, of course, is in the idea that um, there's end organ damage that's associated with hypertensive emergency. Um, and what is end organ damage? And it can be something as simple as you know uh, mental status changes, changes in one's vision. Um, chest discomfort, you know, having a heart attack by all regards, uh, pulmonary symptoms of shortness of breath. You know, one of the more classic ones I think we sort of look for and, and think of, or, uh, and I'll, you know, give a shout out to my nephrology fellows here is, um, uh, of course, any sort of renal damage as well. Um, and so we look for signs and evidence, I think, of end organ damage is, is I think, the uh, the term that we, we associate with hypertensive emergency mm-hmm. over urgency. So I, I want to ask you a slightly metaphysical question. It's not on the script here. 
Do you believe in hypertensive urgency? Oh, God, I'm glad. Um, you know, there have been papers. Um, there are, I, I think I've read probably half a dozen uh, perspective and opinion papers over the years about the idea of does hypertensive urgency exist or is this just sort of one of these made up things, sort of like pre-diabetes, um, where we've put a label on something um, at this point in time and then all of a sudden it sort of became a disease state. Right. Um I have fallen into the category of, I believe it's sort of a made up state at this point in time. Um, and if there's, if there are no hard endpoints, if there's no, um, physiologic damage caused, and if the patient doesn't actually realize, you know, something bad is going on, um, you know, is, is, is it really, um, uh, is it really a pathology, I guess, in that sort right. of setting? So uh, I've had this internal debate and lots of other people have had this uh, debate as well. And, I'd love to hear what you guys think too. I think it's like tooth fairy. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my problem is that if you call something, if you give us this, this horrible name and you send them to the ER, the doctor's like, well, Mr. Smith, you've got hypertensive urgency. And he thinks, oh my gosh, I'm dying. Now I have chest pain. Now I'm having blurry vision. <laughs> now I'm having, having a headache. And then next thing you know, they're being admitted for their hypertensive urgency that they've had for years and years and years. And so I think we've got to be careful because the nomenclature itself can be damaging. I've and okay, Stuart, you're a coding, you're a coding guy. Is there an ICD-10 right. code for hypertensive urgency? I believe there is. Actually, I thought there wasn't. I'd have to look it up. I actually don't know off the top of my head because I never even looked for it. <laughs> uh, I sixteen point zero hypertensive crisis. So that actually includes hypertensive urgency. So that's 16.0, hypertensive emergency, 16.1, and unspecified, 16.9. So there you go. There's your answer. So I've taken to writing acute hypertension or acute severe hypertension in the chart rather than, and and if it's hypertensive emergency, Joel, maybe I'm misattributing this to you, but I, I heard someone say this like, hypertensive emergency looks like an emergency. Like the patient's not just <laughs> sitting there like chilling in bed. I don't know if I'm attributing that to you r correctly, but- I, that's what I, that's what I've been uh, saying to people and to patients. I mean, if, if you have a patient that's sitting there with a blood pressure, systolic blood pressure of 190 and they feel fine, they're like surfing uh, Twitter on their phone, who cares? Uh, you know, you have plenty of time there to fix that blood pressure. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they can look fine and still have heavy proteinuria and acute renal failure and they don't look bad and they, you, you'll see, you know, biochemical evidence for end organ damage, even though they are not suffering. But nobody seems to look for the proteinuria in the, in the yeah. ED. That's, that's one of my sticking points. Joel, we have, we have no shortage of labs at Cashlack. So I'm usually, <laughs> I'm usually looking at a patient that's been fully labbed up, surfing their phone. And I'm pretty convinced there's nothing, there's nothing bad going on here. So that, but that brings up a good point. What, let's say someone systolic blood pressure 190. Uh, I mean, what, what basic workup do you, do you recommend? Uh, you got to find a medical student who still has his ophthalmoscope. So it's going to be a third year <laughs> early in the season, right? Don't try to find a, a, a jaded third year, almost a fourth year. They'll never have the ophthalmoscope. I still have my ophthalmoscope. Paul, I, I guarantee you, you are going to make Williams. a great third-year medical student one day. <laughs> Paul Williams was the only person in our residency program that was carrying an ophthalmoscope at all times. He was Darn He was the best. He probably still carries it. Uh, it's no longer functional. It's been used <laughs> to death. I'm afraid. So I, I've still been too cheap to get another one. Pascal, what what are you what are you doing? What what is your approach to this this condition? Hypertensive urgency. Do you think it exists? And and how do you handle it? 
So since I've been in med school, I've only heard about it. So I think it exists. <laughs> I, um, I think um, basically it's just a high blood pressure that needs to be treated and there is no emergency in treating it. Um, I think looking at actually the guidelines, um, just to bring bring some guidelines into this, the American College of Cardiology says like patients with hypertensive urgency should not be admitted to the hospital, should not go to the ED, and should just be followed as an outpatient. And they probably shouldn't tell them they have urgency. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to speak over. <laughs> um, and then actually, like, if those patients are sent to the ED, the American College of uh, Emergency Physicians says don't even give them any IV medications. Really, the treatment of these patients is in the outpatient clinic where they're followed by a nephrologist or a primary care doctor who can um, increase their um, antihypertensives. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that it exists. It's just high blood pressure without end organ damage that needs to be treated before you get end organ damage. I think my philosophic concern, and I'm sort of, I'm on the fence with this, about hypertensive urgency existing. I just don't want to see the pendulum swing back too much the other way where we're laissez-faire about it. Because I think there's right. the difference between a person standing on the edge of a cliff and the person at the bottom of the ravine is just a step, right? Like, And it's the same person. So even though it's not something that needs immediate acute aggressive intervention like mm -hmm. i just i don't want to see my i've seen my learners actually sort of become almost kind of casual like yes yeah, their systolic's 220 so i told them to eat less salt and we'll, we'll check them next week like i don't i don't know that that's quite the right <laughs> approach either so i don't want to forget to treat the actual hypertension because i still think it's it's not good like i think that's an important point to retain during this discussion it just doesn't warrant admission so paul's in the do not randomize the diastolic greater than 120 to randomized control trial <laughs> i think that empiric trial has already happened i think we know what happens Right. Charlie, your your journal recently published a things we do for no reason on this, right? Yeah. What, what was the gist of what was the gist there? Yeah. So uh, as many of the listeners probably know, uh, I think Tony Brew wrote the, the this article on the yeah. um, PRN utilization of of uh, hydralazine or labetalol in patients with um, hypertensive urgency. Um, and basically the the take the take home message was, you know, stop, we don't need to be doing this at this point in time. And the reason is, is there's, there's no real data to actually support the use of uh, PRN um, antihypertensives in these patients. Uh, we all know that, you know, um, um, hypertension uh, as a chronic disease, of course, is bad and we should control it that, and we should aim to sort of control it um, on that level. But there's just no data to actually support that bringing it down acutely is actually good. Um, and then the, the few studies that actually do exist um, actually show that there are, you know, adverse outcomes of when we try to sort of aggressively lower somebody blood pressure mm -hmm. um, from lightheadedness, dizziness, falls, syncopizing, and that sort of thing. Um, and so just by, you know, I think we oftentimes get um, um, sort of relaxed in the idea of, oh, just give him, you know, 10 of hydral, his blood pressure will come down and he'll be all okay. Uh, but for every time you do that, of course, there are, again, sort of the consequences to that. Mm. Um, and I think that's what um, a, a lot of hospitals are coming around to sort of recognizing. Yeah. You beat the drum to the next patient that we have. All right. Yeah. Well, and it, on there? I think I think it's doctors being expected to have an answer when they get the phone call. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think this is uh, one of my favorite sayings, and people who know me well um, know, have heard me say this, is um, one of the things that I will oftentimes share with my learners is 
um, don't just do something, stand there, right? And so oftentimes the system um, <laughs> asks us to react to something. And, you know, we are commonly taught to react. You have to do something. But this is one of those situations where you don't have to do something right now, but let's look at their blood pressure medications. Let's readjust, you know, their home meds while they're here. Um, and let's think about underlying causes for actually why they're actually hypertensive. Um, when our hospitalized patients become febrile, tachycardic, or hypoxic, what do we do? We work up for the reasons for why they're doing that. But blood pressure seems to be this funny one where we don't look for other reasons commonly, but we just go ahead and treat it. Uh, so it's one of these, the vital signs that sort of, we treat differently than the rest of the vital, vital signs sometimes. And I find that odd. I love that you said that it's that thing we treat without actually like doing anything about it. So, so you're totally right. Like, I think um, even there was like this one study which shocked me where like only 7.5% of patients in the hospital who got IVPRN medicines were actually seen by a physician. Um, and maybe like 1% of those actually had an emergency. So it's um, probably just a resident who got a call and wants to react to the high blood pressure and the nurse wants to check the vitals again and see a better blood pressure um, without actually assessing the patient, knowing whether the high blood pressure is because of pain, because of anxiety, because someone forgot to resume their home medicines, um, because they've been pumped with five liters of fluid in the ICU and now they're super overloaded. So there's like lots of reasons that we need to address first before giving the IV medicine. One of the one of the points that came up in one of these studies, I think it might have been in the Things We Do For No Reason article, is that primary care doctors are seeing like lots and lots of these patients and only a very small percentage are actually getting sent to the emergency department. And I think that's just, and and that the, the, the study that was highlighted was saying that there's there's not really a difference in outcomes in those patients other than probably days spent in the hospital. Paul, do you remember that? That's exactly right. Yeah. The only metric that changes, you were much more likely to get admitted if you were sent to the ER at 30 days. And I think even six months, your mortality, your blood pressure, like all of it was exactly right. the same. So all and you it, did was just expose them to hospital yeah. risks. Yeah. It, it, and it's so disruptive to their life. I, the the whole hypertensive emergency thing, um, before there were blood pressure medications, th those patients, when they were having blood pressures in the 200s and it wasn't treated, if they were they were dying within a year, many of them. So that's that's why we know it's a serious condition. It's just now, uh, I think the better option is to, in hospitalized patients, look for things like pain, anxiety, mismedications, volume overload, et cetera, and then uh, go up on something that's going to be more long-acting or part of their, their chronic regimen. Do, do you ever run into the problem where you're trying to admit a patient, though, and you're like, I'm going to put them on the regular med surge floor, and the med surge floor is like, you know, their blood pressure is 190 over 120. Yeah, we're not, we're, we're not going to accept this patient until the blood pressure is less than 180 over 120. Yes. Do you ever run into that problem? That is, that is, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know any. Uh, yeah, because because then you're kind of like stuck between rock and hard place. You talk to, you know, the uh, charge nurse, the bed coordinator. Like, yeah, yeah. His 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 blood pressure has been this way for like seven years. So we're not yeah. going to change it overnight here. Let's treat a COPD exacerbation. Charlie, do you have any sort of workaround for that situation? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I've oftentimes, whenever I've talked about this topic with, with others, um, you oftentimes sort of come to the conclusion that this is information that not only f- should physicians know, but our nursing colleagues uh, should probably know this information as well, because they're the ones who are gathering this data and then sharing it with us. Um, so, uh, you know, this is one of these things that's going to probably take years and years to trickle down. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I do agree we need to sort of... Um, work together with our nursing colleagues on understanding the importance or lack thereof of this. Right. Yeah. I think we've lost our chief here. Um, yeah. So now while we're screwing around, like I gave a psychiatry grant rounds on just outpatient management of high blood pressure since they don't get that talk very much. And one of the, one of the poor guys whose job it is just to get people to inpatient psych facilities is like, they won't accept with these type of, like, so what, what agent can I get PRN just to get them out the door? I was like, that's not, anything i'm going to actually answer but it's i mean they're in this position where they literally can't discharge the person unless they have this absolute number that they have to meet and yeah we we talked about that with it's absurd but it's just with difficult. uh it was i think scott weingart we talked he's yeah. an oh, yeah. emergency medicine physician he was like he, he he goes off on a rant on this because he goes yeah we know the person sitting there their blood pressure is 200 we know they're going to be fine. We just started some oral medications, but I have to push IV hydralazine to get them out of the ER because the floor won't accept them. Yeah, and yeah. and he was, I think he was actually advocating that the primary doctor shouldn't have sent them there in the first place because they were right. asymptomatic. But, you know, mm-hmm. you can't. There's a lot of systems flaws there you could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing I know, you have RRTs being called overnight. Right. And not every not every primary care office is set up even to do like urinalysis and a you know check creatinine an EKG well, a chest X ray if you're if you're worried enough to do those things and it's it's not always primary care officers that are sending them so sometimes it's urgent care centers yeah so that's a huge issue or call centers you know yeah or call centers too I check my blood pressure and it's two twenty over one hundred twenty <laughs> oh my gosh go to the ER right now the next question should have been <laughs> what's your normal blood pressure. I, I have literally had patients come in. I, I work in our urgent care at the VA, and I've ha- literally had patients walk in saying, you know, I feel fine. I called into the um, uh, the nurse hotline. I told them my blood pressure. They told me to immediately come here. And I looked at them. I was like, great. Did you miss your, did you, you know, forget to take your blood pressure medications this morning? Yeah, yeah, I was traveling. Okay, take them and go home. That's great. Justin, do you want to break in? Do we miss anything? No, the only thing is if we wanted to talk about are the specific risks associated with acute management, like the dropping of the blood pressure. And I think there was something in the write-up about how there's not really good follow-up, and this is just something that is not well taken care of as a primary care issue. Joel, did you have anything else? Did you want to, did you? No, there's, I guess there's two things I'd like to highlight. So one was the, um, the, re- the, the observational trial. They looked at crazy high blood pressures in internist's office and internists could either send them to the ER or send them home with follow-up. And then they looked for uh, difference in outcomes. Now, this is, of course, is just observational, but there was no difference in outcome whether they sent them home or to the ER. Uh, and, and that really has reassured me in my management to just, hey, I know you have high blood pressure. Let's change your management. Let's change your medicines. Let's make sure you're actually taking your pills and let's see you in a week rather than, you know, uh, 
uh, frog marching them down to the ER to get IV medications that who knows what's going to happen. And I, I just know in general, sending patients to the ER is going to result in a unhappy experience. Like nobody mm -hmm. likes going to the emergency room and I only try to do it if they really need it. I really try to avoid that at all costs. If I can get them to, if they need to be admitted, I try to get them directly admitted. And if I can send them home and manage it as an outpatient, I try to manage them as an outpatient. Pascal, did you find anything about the very the, the specific risks of of treating with IV hydralazine when you were going through the uh, when you were kind of going through the write up here? Yeah. So one thing um, I think to note about hydralazine. So hypertensive emergencies um, need IV medications for treatment, and depending on what kind of emergency or what kind of org what organ is involved, you choose what IV medication to give. And actually, IV hydralazine is really not indicated for anything. And when you look at its pharmaco, like, so like, basically you give hydralazine to someone and there is no way to predict how much it's going to decrease the blood pressure. It can decrease it by 10 points and can decrease it by 30 points. There's really no way of telling. And then you also give hydralazine and um, the metabolism of the drug the, like is variable. And some people it can... Um, disappear within a few hours or it can last for up to 12 hours so then there really is no good way to predict how hydralazine is going to fix this high blood pressure is going to improve it whether it's going to improve it um, just enough so that that doesn't cause any complications and so I think um, it is a harmful medication in that sense. I think up to 10% of patients who get it do report some kind of bad outcome. Like even if their blood pressure is not low, they still report dizziness and lightheadedness and not feeling well. Um, so yeah, I think um, since, since this write-up, I've definitely not used hydralazine. I think we should move on to our final topic which I, I mean, at least for me, this might be the quickest part of this because I know the, the least about this, uh, the, the evidence here. And uh, I'll go ahead and read this case. This is a 54-year-old obese male with CKD3, hypertension, HEFPEF, and osteoarthritis is admitted for a total knee replacement. His medications include HCTZ, lisinopril, naproxen, and sertraline. You are seeing the patient in clinic for a pre-op evaluation, and he asks if he should hold any of his medications before surgery. So, the, of course, that medications before surgery is a huge topic, but we're going to be very narrow here. So we're going to talk about the ACE inhibitor. Pascal, it, should we be concerned if we're going to be using an ACE inhibitor? And I guess we'll include with that uh, angiotensin receptor blockers as well before surgery. Should we be concerned there? So the short answer is I don't know. Um, <laughs> so this is, um, like you guys said, like the topic that I never knew I should be thinking about. Um, so I guess, uh, so Charlie actually came up with this topic. And um, when I was reading about it, it's um, it's really, um, like there's really not much out there. So I guess you have a patient on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for very good indications um, they need to be on the drug, but they're going for surgery in a, in a few days. Do you want to stop the medication or do you want to continue it? And um, there's really no good answer there. You can stop it, but then the patient's blood pressure is like 200 over 120 and they're having a hypertensive emergency and the surgery is postponed. 
or you can give them the drug and they go into the OR and then they're on pressors in the ICU afterwards. So I guess um, deciding um, whether to keep it or not keep it is an area of debate. Um, and um, I would love to hear from Charlie since I think the hospitalists are the people who like do the perioperative evaluation the most and get to decide this. Yeah, this is this is a really interesting topic and hits sort of close to home. I practice on a co-management service um, at the VA, um, and to get to the heart of the matter is is you know our group has sort of sat around on multiple occasions and we have a perioperative um, expert at our at our institution, um, and we've sort of discussed this idea of the use of perioperative um, ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And we come to different answers and conclusions like every other month, you know, like one month we're like, hold them. And the next month we're like, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> um, and so I think I've just resulted in like, I hold them on Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, and then like give them on Tuesdays and Thursdays at this point in time. Because, uh, you know, Pascal is right. When you sort of sit down and look at the data, it's all observation. It's all retrospe- sort of retrospective stuff. Um and it, so it's really difficult to sort of interpret. If you also look at all the different guidelines from the AHA guidelines to the um, uh, to the Canadian guidelines, they all sort of say mildly disparate things. Some saying go ahead and, and hold, um, while others saying it's okay to give in the perioperative period. So, you know, I think as practitioners, as hospitalists, as, co-manage, as co-managers, um, we're really sort of shrugging our shoulders right now. We really don't know what to do. Um, the other interesting thing I find with this is, is what are the outcomes we're actually looking at? You know, the idea of intraoperative hypotension, like what does that mean um, in some capacity and how clinically significant is that? Um, I've seen that as an outcome on several of these um, studies. Um, and if there are no long-term ramifications of that, is that necessarily a bad thing? And I don't know. Um, and so I think like the rest of us here, I'm again, shrugging my shoulders going, I don't know what to do here. And um Anybody, somebody, please help me. Well, I'd say uh, what I would say is the most concerning is, you know, we it's it's easy to say, yeah, it's only retrospective and observational data. But one of those retrospective and observational studies showed uh, a survival signal, right? A 20% increase in mortality in patients that continued on ACE inhibitors for, you know, non-operative or non-cardiothoracic surgery. And that's the kind of thing that gets my attention. And then consistently in these observational trials, and actually some of there have been a couple of um, randomized trials with those small, they have shown this consistent uh, intraoperative hypotension, though usually not postoperative. And and it makes sense, right? You are essentially eliminating one of the uh, central uh, mechanisms for maintaining blood pressure for, you know, having a, a counter-regulatory response when your blood pressure drops is, is using the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And so, again, you know, you know, I had no idea this was even on the radar. And, and the more I looked into it, the more concerned I got. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people you know, we're, we're adding the ACE inhibitors to get that blood pressure from 140 to 125. In that situation, I think trimming that blood pressure, that ACE inhibitor before the surgery has very little negative consequences as long as it gets resumed afterwards. Um, but uh, I think what Pascal was saying is the reason we're not coming strong with a recommendation is the right study has not been done. We don't have a large RCT to answer this question. Mm-hmm. 
in your yes. collective experiences, does the acuity of the patient make a difference? Because I would argue, like, the patient who comes in septic and, and maybe needs an urgent surgery, like an amputation for a neck fascia or an osteo, is different than someone coming in for a total knee. And so, I, you know, is, is that all things being equal in electrolytes, say that those parts are okay. Does that, does that matter or seem to make a difference in terms of what's been looked at? Sorry. Usually the studies have been limited to patients with planned outpatient studies right. that they're okay. not, they're not they're excluding immersion surgery so that they can actually randomize, uh, not so much randomize, but uh, give patients an opportunity to stop the drug. Well, t tying both of these topics together, I have to say that uh, when I venture down to the PACU or when I look at like what happened in the operating room uh, and the medications that were given, I am like horrified. I, anesthesia <laughs> is like a different world. Like, I'm like, wait a minute, the patient got 20 of IV hydralazine, their pressure tank, then they were on phenylephrine. Phenylephrine, <laughs> right, right. And then they got more hydralazine because the blood pressure went up above 220. I, I'm not kidding. These are real what things I've seen. Never over consulting that. nephrology for ATN two days later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I really, I almost try to just ignore the op note unless something goes wrong. And just if, unless something goes wrong and I need to look, I just don't look at it. I just see kidney boy with his head down there. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. We, we've definitely stepped on a landmine that we have no idea what to do with. <laughs> I, this yeah, I, this is an issue that I I get surprisingly few questions for, and I was surprised to see how robust, though limited, the literature was. There was a lot of people that had looked at this question, though they had not been able to come to conclusive answers. Yeah, it might it might be one of those things where it makes sense if you have a patient that you know has just like crazy hypertension that's like really difficult con to control, and they're finely controlled. You might not want to. You might want to make as few changes as possible to their regimen perioperatively. But if you have like, like I saw a cash lack uh, recently, the little old lady with a blood pressure of one twenty, who's on twenty of lisinopril, and she's going into the OR. I am not putting her on lisinopril pre-op. Um, yeah. But outside those two extreme examples, all the patients in the middle, I don't. I don't know what I'll do. I'm glad we can provide guidance here. <laughs> we'll probably never have an answer for that, to be honest. Yeah, I, I generally don't hold it if they can tolerate the pressures. But So let's go around. Uh, and does anybody... So this, this episode on PRN hydralazine or PIN antihypertensive medications and perioperative ACE inhibitor... Pascal, did you have any take-home points that you wanted to give the audience? Any you know things that you wanted them specifically to remember about this? Yeah, I think um, specifically in the PRN um, anti-hypertensive uh, management, I think just stopping the use of IV PRN medications is key. Um, outpatient management of hypertensive urgencies and really assessing the patient at the bets, the patient with high blood pressure at the bedside and um, kind of looking at what is causing this high blood pressure instead of reacting and just giving IV medicines. Charlie? Yeah, I would just echo um, what Pascal sort of um, mentioned at that point in time. Whenever I'm seeing an elevated blood pressure, I'm going back to the patient's outpatient medication regimen and seeing what was dropped on admission, what can be added back on. Um, I think there have been some studies in the past that show that um, uh, those uh, who were given PR and medications for their blood pressure control, about 40% of them had not actually been continued on their home medications. So that's mm -hmm. a great place that I'm um, actually starting at whenever I'm um, looking into this. Okay. Chief, we'll, we'll, we'll end with you. Any final words of wisdom? Yeah, no, I know. 
I, I think uh, Dr. Karula absolutely nailed it. She got the three the three key pieces. Uh, one, uh, stop giving IV medications if you don't have you know an aneurysm or you know crushing substernal chest pain. Right, just stay away from those. Two, when you get called, go see the patient. And three, when the blood pressure is really high in the clinic, the ER is not your friend. Take care of the patient. The patient right in front of you, right then, and just get a quick follow up. Okay. And uh, everybody, uh, don't forget to fill out your brackets for Neff Madness. I, I think this is coming out before the tournament starts. Or, or actually, do these have to come out during the tournament, Joel? Please. These need to come out after the tournament started. After the tournament started. It, after okay. the tournament started. We're not, you know, after March 15th. Okay. <laughs> but they can, can they still pil- fill out brackets at that point? That's what I'm saying. You can fill out brackets between March 15th and March 31st. The first round results will be announced on April 1st. So we'll we'll reveal the brackets on March 15th. This podcast will come out sometime after that. Fill out your brackets and then uh, and then, you know, hold on to your butts on April 1st because we're going to be every every other day, every other day. We're going to be having a uh, we'll have a, a different round being announced. And uh, and I think April 8th is the uh, I believe that that's the champion will be crowned. And what's the, uh, do, do you have prizes yet? I, I think oh, last time got, we spoke to got, you. <laughs> we've got prizes. Um, um, I don't remember what, but they're great. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have the towels. I think that's what we're doing. I might I've, be seen, I've seen shirts. There's T-shirts. shirts. Yeah. I know if the person, the team who has the best uh, uh, bracket or the person who gets the best bracket, I think they get a, uh, a textbook, uh, the primer, the National Kidney Foundation uh, primer on renal disease is actually a really good book. Okay. It's like, uh, it's one of those books that's like meant to be read rather than displayed. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so, so what I'm hearing and, and what I'm hearing here is bragging rights are one of the key, key things that you're going for in this. There's a there's a new category. There's a new category to win this year. It's best Neff Madness themed party. <laughs> VCU last year went bananas and had an outstanding party, and uh, really have set the bar quite high. So uh, if you can organize a great Neff Madness party and and uh, document it on social media. Uh, there's there's a there's a there's a special award just waiting for you. And that was not a potassium pun, I hope, because I will throw myself <laughs> right out the window. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the pun the pun contest. What's that all about? Oh. Well, uh, I so our esteemed team at the Curbsiders, uh, we are we are we want some Neff Madness themed puns. Give me a give me a second to pull this up because this is Hannah's. This is Hannah's uh, brainstorm here, so I don't know that I even fully understand what is going on. <laughs> Joel, I've lost control of the team at the Curbsiders, uh, which I think is a good sign that things are going well, that that things are being created without my knowledge. And uh, I, I think it's cute that you think you ever had control. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't I have even... to say I tendered my resignation in this thread and then immediately got some panicked emails from some of my colleagues. So I had to take that joke down almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can we go around the horn and make, and have everybody pick uh, LR versus saline and then, um, and then uh, uh, perioperative ACE inhibitors versus oh, yeah. uh, PRN uh, hydralazine. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Rulo, you want to start off? Yes, I go with um, LR and PRN hydralazine. And then between those two, who wins? 
the PRN hydralazine. PRN hydralazine emerging from the hospitalist nephrology. Uh, Paul, you want you want to venture? Yeah, I'll I'll do LR and PRN hydralazine as well. And then emerging from that battle. And then emerging, I, I think LR. Uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna go with LR. Okay, Stuart. I go LR and PRN hydralazine as well. And uh, in this case, LR. Okay. Uh, Charlie? Uh, I'll do LR and uh, the PR hydralazine, and I'm going to go hydralazine. Yay. Uh, Matt? <laughs> before, before I answer, is this how does the blue ribbon panel judge based on evidence or just based on like what is the more, you know, the more fun or the more like sort of engaging topic? Don't ask that question. Just answer. <laughs> I don't, it is so confusing and confounding what the blue ribbon panel does. I don't. I, I don't. You created this. You're just like me. You don't know what's going on in your own organization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel much more strongly about pure hydralazine, but I feel like the evidence is now more compelling for the LR versus the normal saline. Yeah. So if we're going evidence, LR. If we're going something I could scream about all day long, then pure hydralazine. I never. I, I, I am duplicating Paul's bracket. Uh, yeah, Control C, Control V, Paul's bracket. Uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going with. So all the curbsiders agree. I'm going to go with LR followed by PRN hydralazine and then PRN hydralazine winning the hospitalist bracket. I Ooh. think that's it. Yeah. So all of our guests have the same bracket and all the curbsiders had the same bracket. <laughs> Who'd have yep. thunk it? Oh, it's not well. <laughs> right, I'm sure we're, it's going to be normal saline and ACE inhibitors with ACE inhibitors. <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, this was really fun. Joel, I think this worked well. Uh, Justin, great job putting this together, this this script. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Wait, wait, what, what was Justin's pick? He's got to be the tiebreaker. Justin, come on. Guys, I uh, I thought this out a lot, and I think Lattated Rangers, it's an overrated favorite. They had a big year, but uh, Normal Sailing has strong fundamentals. They've had, <laughs> had good performance in the past. <laughs> and the Blue Ribbon panel is going to reward their consistency and Normal saline all the way. Uh, normal saline's like the Patriots of this. If normal yeah. saline wins Neff Madness, that is one of the Justin, biggest upsets you heard of all first. time. You heard it here first. It'll be just like the past Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Just as boring. Uh, I'm sure he's got it nailed it. I, I, right. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking about. I'm like, you know what? That's going to be it. <laughs> that was well said. Well said. Here we honor tradition. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing mm. you a little knowledge food for your brain whole. Yummy. <laughs> Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Thank you. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review. Please review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Justin Burke, and as always to our social social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chu Manchu on Facebook. Until next next time, until next time, I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I, I often wonder what it's like to be in your head, Stuart. It's uh, Ugh, it's, it's always horrible. interesting. To watch from the outside is interesting. Uh, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Behind the curtain, he's recording in total darkness now. But it's completely <laughs> unclear to the rest of us. I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs> 
You can see my eyes. I know, but it's just like you go to your like the the you like turn the the camera off for a while, and then you come back and it's like complete darkness. And like once in a while, it's like um, Sin City. Like we just see your glasses <laughs> glaring. Like uh, you know what's his name uh, from Sin City? I can't. It's a Frank Miller comic. Yeah, yeah that's perfect. <laughs> what's his name again? I I forgot. It's like the album cover of Bohemian Rhapsody for uh, <laughs> people on Queen. 